Hello and welcome to the Resilience by Design podcast. The Resilience by Design Lab at Royal Roads University, led by Dr. Robin Cox, aims to advance leadership in disaster risk reduction and climate action. Royal Roads University and the RBD Lab sit on the unceded territories of the Kosapsim and Lekwungen ancestors and families. At the Resilience by Design Lab, we work alongside youth and adults as changemakers and leaders to imagine new possibilities for climate action. This podcast is one of many ways to tell the stories of the inspiring changemakers and communities that we work with. My name is Ozzy Lang, and I have the pleasure of hearing and sharing these stories with you. On this episode, I am joined by Stephanie Wood, a reporter from the Narwhal. Stephanie has several in-depth articles covering various climate impacts, from forest fires to salmon populations. Stephanie has a unique talent for writing authentic stories of people and communities being impacted by climate change, and the resulting solutions and work that these communities are undertaking. She is joining me on this episode to talk about the importance of telling climate change stories. Thank you, Stephanie, for joining me on the podcast. I just get you to start with your name and a little bit of background about yourself. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm Stephanie Wood, and my ancestral name is Kritasawet, and I'm a journalist with the Narwhal, and I write BC-based stories. And I live here and work here in North Vancouver, which is my territory and which is where I was born and raised. So, yeah. (laughs) We'll just jump right into the first question here. Mm -hmm. So how do you tell stories that inform and invite people to explore how they can engage in climate adaptation or mitigation in their community? That's one of our biggest goals at the Narwhal. And one of the biggest focuses that we try to take when we're writing stories is really basing it in communities. We also obviously write some bigger and more general stories but it feels like a lot of climate change coverage that you see is about like global emissions and international conferences and like national level data and all of those things are still really really important but we try to really focus on making sure that the communities that are that are feeling climate change and that are doing work to mitigate it are also being seen so if we can have a really strong community story like that's like our favorite that's our ideal that's what we always kind of uh, strive for And I feel like that does invite people to explore how they can adapt and mitigate to climate change within their own communities. We try to really look closely at where climate change is is impacting people. We do a lot of stories about people trying to do things like flood mitigation in their community. Where did they get the funding? How are they trying to execute it? What kind of timeline do they have to do this work? And we try to actually really lay that stuff out in detail so that people reading it can see how they could do something similar in their own community. We do try to take a big solutions approach to a lot of the stories that we do. Why is it important to include multiple perspectives in a story? Whenever I do any kind of story, I ask the people in it, what can we do to improve this? And everyone has different answers and we try to include all those answers. Cause once again, like there's no one solution to any problem, but if every single story we do, we're asking tons of different people, what would you do to improve this? Then you just wind up hearing from so many people with different kinds of expertise on the, the ways they see forward. In your latest article, you were talking through how this conservation organization was taking on developers. It's such a hyper-local issue, 
but Mm -hmm. I feel like you brought the story to life to really explain how this is happening all over BC and all over Canada. You brought such a unique perspective to it that you were able to tell both sides of the story while saying this is the reason that they're fighting for it. It's not specifically to get rid of this one development. It's for the future of that green belt and making sure that more developments don't come in. You made me think I could do that in my community. Totally. I think a lot of people, when they read that story, they would be seeing the the green area in their neighborhood that was cut down recently for a development, right? Like everyone would have that, oh, like that's just like the forest that I used to go to all the time that was like two minutes away from me and people see themselves. When I read it, this story with Ezra and the developers, I felt like I was like right back in my small town. These local arguments where people will take a side and be so passionate about it and they never really see the full picture. Being able to see both sides of it in that article that you wrote, I could understand where Ezra was coming from. I could understand where the developers were coming from Mm -hmm. and it brought so much more to the story. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the Narwhal does that really well. That's exactly what we try to do. Not only the complexity of a situation like climate change or science, but the complexity of people. The the thing that I always try to keep in mind whenever a story like this comes up, because we have a lot of stories that are kind of similar to this, that what the developer and what Ezra have in common and everyone else who's involved with all their opinions is everybody wants the best thing for their family and for their community and for where they live. And so no matter what, that's what people share. And everyone has a different idea about how to get there. (laughs) But often, given the right circumstances, can get to a place where they can talk it out and have that dialogue. And it doesn't mean agreeing, (laughs) but understanding. And then also that people can have really conflicting beliefs. Once again, people are complex and people often believe more than one thing at one time. (laughs) And we just really try to reflect that, that none of these issues are simple and none of these people are simple. (laughs) The other thing I really like about that story too, and the reason I kind of started the story with it was the way that the the man at the center of that story, Ezra, talked about how he was never an advocate before, that he had never written a letter to a politician or even signed a petition, that he that he cared about climate change, but had never really taken action before at, at any at any scale. And I just thought that was so interesting to start that way because I think we often kind of fall into the cynical belief that people can't change or or won't change and it was just so interesting to hear him tell the story of how, of how he changed of how within a year he really kind of became a different person with a totally different role in his community I found that there was that pivotal moment when him and his son were going through mm-hmm. on a walk in the forest and his son was asking him questions that is the pivotal moment for so many people that I've talked to is mm-hmm. they're out in nature or they're looking at their kids and they're thinking I want to make sure that I protect these spaces so that climate change doesn't have a horrendous impact on future generations. Yeah, totally. That's something that connects all of us. I think everyone wants the best for their kids. And if you really are thinking realistically about what is lying in the future, then you're really worried for your kids and you want to do something. That brings me to this point of what inspired you to explore climate change. Yeah, I actually kind of decided to be a journalist first, or that was at least my dream. (laughs) And I didn't really consider writing about climate change or environment for a little bit because I decided I wanted to be a journalist in high school. (laughs) And I really didn't become aware of climate change or at least the seriousness of it until I got to university because it really wasn't something we talked about in high school. It wasn't something um, that we learned about. 
or talked about much in my personal circles. And when I got to university, there's just more vibrant conversations happening in the classes and in the halls. And I think I just kind of woke up to it. And I also started reading more news because I wanted to be a reporter and begin reading stories about it and learning about it and just kind of seeing how important it was. And then that same year, I actually went on a trip to Guatemala through school and we were driving between two towns and I just saw this absolutely massive cut block. And obviously I knew about cut blocks and I had seen them before, but I'd never actually really driven by one so close. <laughs> I'd never really driven through one and just seen how far back it went. I remember that that really impacted me as well, just actually seeing it right in front of me. And then it, it also made me start to notice stuff more at home, like the cut blocks I saw when I was driving to the interior or other kind of incursions on the, on the natural landscape. So yeah, in university, I kind of, it became something that was something that I was actually worried about and cared about and was learning about, but it's still, that was in 2011 and I still didn't actually go to journalism school until 2017. And then I don't think I wrote my first story on climate change till 2018. And so by then I kind of realized that a lot of challenges do come with reporting on climate change. You have a lot of concerns about not wanting to overcomplicate stories with science or something like that. You know, you don't want to overcomplicate them and lose readers. And you also don't want to oversimplify a really complicated issue or contribute to any false binaries or misunderstandings around an issue by oversimplifying it. So, and also trying to write in a way that people really care and feel the urgency, which is something we worry about with all stories, but especially with climate change stories, it can be a real challenge. I've noticed in your articles that specifically thinking about the blue carbon one, and you talk about how much carbon is being absorbed in those salt marshes. But you didn't just say there was 27 kilograms of carbon. You specifically went and said, this is this many barrels of oil, or I think you actually said this many cars on the road. I really enjoyed how you were able to take the scientific side of things, but then bring it to a perspective of an average everyday human could understand that less cars on the road means less carbon in the atmosphere. Yeah, totally. That's something I love about the narwhal. That's the kind of conversations we're always having when we're editing is trying to come up with ways of boiling something down like that and, and not underestimating our readers either that people like do want to understand the science. We're just often talking to people with PhDs who've been working on, you know, salt marshes their whole adult life and they just know a lot more than any of us ever will. But people want to understand and they want to know. And I'm often learning about this stuff for the first time too. So I'm also trying to figure it out and find a way that it makes sense to me that we can also distill that will make sense to other people. But people want to learn the science. They want to understand. They want to kind of have that perspective you just described of actually knowing what that number means. That is the challenge of most mitigation strategies is really getting people to understand what do all these carbon emissions really mean and how is the best way for people to reduce those, which is really where it comes to localized adaptation and mitigation. The article you did on the grasslands in Gainai region of Alberta, they talked about how just a hectare of grasslands and protecting that grasslands can save so much carbon. People often say it all comes down to these global policies to change carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. And mm -hmm. them protecting one hectare of grasslands makes just as much of an impact as a lot of those policies did. Yeah, the grasslands is such a special story because I do feel like um, I was guilty of this as a person in British Columbia, not really 
having any understanding or appreciation for them really in the first place, just knowing about the, the life that they support and um, how beautiful they are and definitely not the carbon aspect <laughs> and definitely not how much that they've actually really suffered and how much they've disappeared through development, the, that the vast majority has been disrupted and so little is protected. It's the least protected ecosystem in Canada. That was mind blowing to me. <laughs> that was all new information for me. But yeah, especially that, that carbon aspect that the grasslands of Western Canada store two to three billion tons of carbon. I never, ever would have thought that. But the other thing that's really special about it is the, the really hyper-local element to it, where a lot of grasslands are also under private ownership. So it's all these amazing examples of people deciding that they're going to make this decision on their private land. It really isn't a government decision at all. It's people who are, once again, partnering with others, who are learning from others in their community, people from Dex Unlimited in particular, but learning from people in their community what they can do to strengthen that land, to strengthen those grasslands. And that has a cumulative impact when more and more and more people are going to do that with their private land. And then suddenly you have that many more hectares of grasslands that are being protected and sequestering carbon. So I think it was a really perfect example of just how much individual action really can make a difference. You have so much passion about telling these stories and really getting down to how do I tell this story in the best way to, to share with readers, but also share an authentic story of these people because people are sharing their lives work with you. What's your favorite parts about sharing stories about climate impacts and community action? Yeah, no, I do really enjoy it. I do feel very passionately about it to the point that as much as I enjoy it, I'm also often like a ball of anxiety, just worrying about <laughs> telling the story properly and representing everyone well and just being really anxious because I feel a lot of responsibility about it. And I feel that the climate anxiety that everybody feels too, I feel like there is so much responsibility on the, on the stories that we tell and how we tell them in terms of communicating the climate emergency and as always representing the people at the core of it who, like you said, have dedicated their lives to this or are being really imp impacted by it. I feel the threat of climate change, like most of us do, like really close to my heart, really viscerally, really emotionally. And I feel the weight of it when I see fires here in the province or way back before the pandemic when we saw fires running through Australia and when you see the heat wave and you see everybody's calling up their elders and making sure that they're okay because they don't have AC and people whose communities are being flooded routinely and they never really get to recover and I think you just get to a point where if you're always paying attention to those things that you feel it at a really emotional level and sometimes you do feel kind of powerless. Sometimes you do feel kind of defeated. It's impossible to not feel that way sometimes. But I'm just so lucky that through this work, I'm so lucky to do because we do get to do such in-depth stories that I wouldn't even get to do other places. That you do get to meet really incredible people with an incredible amount of knowledge who take the time to talk to me and teach me about what they're doing. And they have lived experience there's people with Indigenous knowledge, there's academics and lawyers and policy wonks and all these different kinds of people who will come and give their time for free to us to show us what's going on in their community or on their land and what they feel and what they know has to be done because they know their land better than anybody else. So if anything, I just feel like I'm the really fortunate one that I get to meet all these people and talk about climate impacts in a more concrete way for others. As much as Vancouver is very climate oriented in many ways, it's easy to feel isolated from the impacts because we're cooler near the water often. We often 
don't get the smoke or get it later. And it's kind of easy for a lot of people to not really feel that close to it all the time in their day-to-day life. And we're talking to people who are feeling it in their day-to-day life all the time. They're saying like, I can't hunt anymore. Fish aren't showing up because the rivers are too warm. Creeks are drying up that I used to go to when I was a kid. People are feeling this all the time. And so that's why I feel an immense responsibility, but also an immense privilege that I get to speak to these people and get to hear from them. You talk about this anxiety that you feel, and I think that that's a shared anxiety. I know that I feel it all the time working in this space of Mm -hmm. climate adaptation, climate mitigation. How do you balance that in your stories of sharing the facts and sharing how urgent solving a lot of these problems is with understanding that by overwhelming people, they might just shut off? That's always the balance. This is what we talk about literally all the time at work. And I don't think we have any perfect solid answers. I don't think that we've ever published anything that would really be written off as completely defeatist. I don't know, maybe sometimes. And definitely some quotes from people, like we quote people who have given up hope for their local river. And we have to publish that because that is what those people are experiencing. We really closely consider the language, the words that we're using to describe each thing. How is a reader going to receive this? We're always having these conversations. And as for portraying the, the urgency, that is once again why we really do try to focus at a community level too, to bring a personal element and a face and a name and a town to it. So much climate change reporting can be vague and bringing faces and experiences and loss to it is an important element. But then we do still try to focus on the solution side that helps prevent my own burnout for sure. And hopefully also helps prevent anyone reading from getting overwhelmed by the anxiety, by the feeling of helplessness, to focus on those people who are having an impact and have ideas, right? They just all have so many brilliant ideas. They're not even doing everything they could do. (laughs) If there was a bit more energy and a bit more money put there, there's just all these people who have such brilliant ideas, what they would do for their community if they had the money and the resources to do it. Would you say that sharing of their ideas and sharing of the actions that they're doing is part of the importance of telling these stories about climate change and climate action? Yeah, I think it's the most important thing. And it's honestly what keeps me going reporting on climate change is you're constantly meeting these people and people are reaching out to us too, which is amazing. That's when I often feel like there's no way that we could stop doing this reporting. It's so important. And there's just so many people all with their personal stories. And so I think that telling those personal stories is immensely important. My hope too, is that when you're speaking to these communities and, you know, we're not interviewing like the mayor or something, we're talking to regular people who have not really been in the media and who may feel really disempowered by what's happening in their community and at a big scale. They feel disempowered by what's happening nationally and internationally. There are sometimes moments where they actually can feel kind of empowered by being included in the story. It often takes a while to get there because people often are also worried about being included in media. They don't want to be misquoted or quoted out of context. They don't want consequences if they live in a community with a lot of industry and they speak out against that industry. They don't want personal consequences. There's so often a lot of back and forth, because once again, it's these people's lives. People have to be at the center of it. (laughs) A lot of your stories are based in Indigenous communities. Is this intentional or is this just by coincidence? I'm always hoping to empower people right through the stories that I'm sharing. That was always my goal and my hope in coming into this work. And Indigenous people who are at the forefront of experiencing climate change and trying to find solutions 
it's really especially important to me to try to empower those people in one tiny way by giving them a way to share their story and be recognized for the work that they're doing. The most successful projects that we cover at the Narwhal, when we're looking at solution stories, are always hand in hand with the first people of that land, wherever it is. And so it's really not a nice to have to work with Indigenous people when it comes to working on the land and combating climate change. It's just an absolutely necessary thing. And so it also means it's absolutely necessary to include them in, in our stories and in a respectful way. I find that the Narwhal more often than not will share multiple perspectives and not make it just a duality. Having somebody who is a climate protester and then having an oil executive, here's the two perspectives that are involved in this story. Yeah. But it's, mm -hmm. you could be anywhere in the spectrum, but knowing that this issue is important and finding yeah. a resolution is important for everyone. Yeah, one of the biggest ones that we really have had to focus on because it's so important and it really reflects everything that you're talking about is that workers in industry can often feel sort of demonized by association with an industry that's being held accountable for emissions or breaking permit regulations. And the workers can, by association, feel attacked. And that's something that we really try to address in all of our stories. We've also covered workers in transition and what they're going through. They're also feeling the anxiety of what, what am I going to do if this plant shuts down? And we also try to include the fact that, for example, with the Ferry Creek blockades and also with other stories I've written involved with logging, every single person who wants stricter logging regulations says that they're not calling for an end of logging completely and that they don't blame any particular logger, that they don't, they know where the power and decision-making lies. These conversations can get really polarized, but when you come back to that and, you know, include those quotes where someone is saying, I'm not holding this against any particular person. I'm not writing off anyone involved with this industry. And I'm not saying anyone has a, a bad heart here. So often that's what people are saying. And that's the kind of stuff that we try to include. It really shows the reality of the localized situations. The reality of it is, is it's a bunch of people on all sides who are just trying to figure out how to live their lives the best way possible. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for your time today and for all of the wonderful reporting that you've done and all of the stories that you've shared. I truly feel without that storytelling happening, a lot of these climate actions wouldn't be inspired or wouldn't be happening. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to listening to the whole podcast. Thank you all for listening. On the next episode, we will be discussing the importance of the communities behind Stephanie's stories. If you are interested in reading the articles mentioned in this episode, there will be links in the podcast description. I hope each of you has a wonderful day.